Chapter 11, Part 1 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 11, Reign of Claudius, Defeat of the Goths, Part 1. Reign of Claudius, Defeat of the Goths, Victories, Triumph, and death of Aurelian. Under the deplorable reigns of Valerian and Gallienus, the empire was oppressed and almost destroyed by the soldiers, the tyrants, and the barbarians. It was saved by a series of great princes who derived their obscure origin from the martial provinces of Illyricum. Within a period of about thirty years, Claudius, Aurelian, Probus, Diocletian, and his colleagues triumphed over the foreign and domestic enemies of the state, re-established with the military discipline, the strength of the frontiers, and deserved the glorious title of Restorers of the Roman World. The removal of an effeminate tyrant made way for a succession of heroes. The indignation of the people imputed all their calamities to Gallienus, and the far greater part were indeed the consequence of his dissolute manners and careless administration. He was even destitute of a sense of honour, which so frequently supplies the absence of public virtue. And as long as he was permitted to enjoy the possession of Italy, a victory of the barbarians, the loss of a province, or the rebellion of a general, seldom distributed the tranquil course of his pleasures. At length, a considerable army, stationed on the upper Danube, invested with the imperial purple their leader Aureolus, who, disdaining a confined and barren reign over the mountains of Rhaetia, passed the Alps, occupied Milan, threatened Rome, and challenged Gallienus to dispute in the field the sovereignty of Italy. The emperor, provoked by the insult and alarmed by the instant danger, suddenly exerted that latent vigor which sometimes broke through the indolence of his temper. Forcing himself from the luxury of the palace, he appeared in arms at the head of his legions and advanced beyond the Po to encounter his competitor. The corrupted name of Pontirolo still preserves the memory of a bridge over the Adda, which, during the action, must have proved an object of the utmost importance to both armies. The Rhaetian usurper, after receiving a total defeat and a dangerous wound, retired into Milan. The siege of that great city was immediately formed. The walls were battered with every engine in use among the ancients, and Aureolus, doubtful of his internal strength and hopeless of foreign succors, already anticipated the fatal consequences of unsuccessful rebellion. His last resource was an attempt to seduce the loyalty of the besiegers. He scattered libels through the camp, inviting the troops to desert an unworthy master, who sacrificed the public happiness to his luxury, and the lives of his most valuable subjects to the slightest suspicions. The arts of Aureolus diffused fears and discontent among the principal officers of his rival. A conspiracy was formed by Heraclianus, the Praetorian prefect, by Marcion, a general of rank and reputation, and by Secrops, who commanded a numerous body of the Dalmatian guards. The death of Gallienus was resolved, 
and notwithstanding their desire of first terminating the siege of milan the extreme danger which accompanied every moment's delay obliged them to hasten the execution of their daring purpose at a late hour of the night but while the emperor still protracted the pleasures of the table an alarm was suddenly given that aureolus at the head of all his forces had made a desperate sally from the town gallienus who was never deficient in personal bravery started from his silken couch and without allowing himself time either to put on his armour or to assemble his guards he mounted on horseback and rode full speed towards the supposed place of the attack encompassed by his declared or concealed enemies he soon amidst the nocturnal tumult received a mortal dart from an uncertain hand before he expired a patriotic sentiment using in the mind of gallienus induced him to name a deserving successor and it was his last request that the imperial ornaments should be delivered to claudius who then commanded a detached army in the neighbourhood of pavia the report at least was diligently propagated and the order cheerfully obeyed by the conspirators who had already agreed to place claudius on the throne on the first news of the emperor's death the troops expressed some suspicion and resentment till the one was removed and the other assuaged by a donator of twenty pieces of gold to each soldier they then ratified the election and acknowledged the merit of their new sovereign the obscurity which covered the origin of claudius though it was afterwards embellished by some flattering fictions sufficiently betrays the meanness of his birth we can only discover that he was a native of one of the provinces bordering on the danube that his youth was spent in arms and that his modest valour attracted the favour and confidence of decius the senate and people already considered him an excellent officer equal to the most important trusts and censured the inattention of valerian who suffered him to remain in the subordinate section of a tribune but it was not long before that emperor distinguished the merit of claudius by declaring him general and chief of the illyrian frontier with the command of all the troops in thrace Macia, dacia pannonia and dalmatia the appointments of the prefect of egypt the establishments of the proconsul of africa and the sure prospect of the consulship by his victories over the goths he deserved from the senate the honour of a statue and excited the jealous apprehensions of gallienus it was impossible that a soldier could esteem so dissolute a sovereign nor is it easy to conceal a just contempt some unguarded expressions which dropped from claudius were officially transmitted to the royal ear the emperor's answer to an officer of confidence describes in very lively colours his own character and that of the times there is not anything capable of giving me more serious concern than the intelligence contained in your last dispatch that some malicious suggestions have indisposed towards us the mind of our friend and parent claudius as you regard your allegiance use every means to appease his resentment but conduct your negotiation with secrecy let it not reach the knowledge of dacian troops they are already provoked and it might inflame their fury i myself have sent him some presents be it your care that he accept them with pleasure above all 
let him not suspect that I am made acquainted with his imprudence. The fear of my anger might urge him to desperate counsels. The presence which accompanied this humble epistle, in which the monarch solicited a reconciliation with his discontented subject, consisted of a considerable sum of money, a splendid wardrobe, and a valuable service of silver and gold plate. By such arts, Gallienus softened the indignation and dispelled the fears of his Illyrian general, and during the remainder of that reign the formidable sword of Claudius was always drawn in the cause of a master whom he despised. At last, indeed, he received from the conspirators the bloody purple of Gallienus, but he had been absent from their camp and councils, and however he might applaud the deed, we may candidly presume that he was innocent of the knowledge of it. When Claudius ascended the throne, he was about fifty-four years of age. The siege of Milan was still continued, and Aureolus soon discovered that the success of his artifices had only raised up a more determined adversary. He attempted to negotiate with Claudius a treaty of alliance and partition. Tell him, replied the intrepid emperor, that such proposals should have been made to Gallienus. He, perhaps, might have listened to them with patience, and accepted a colleague as despicable as himself. This turned refusal, and a last unsuccessful effort, obliged Aureolus to lead the city and himself to the discretion of the conqueror. The judgment of the army pronounced him worthy of death, and Claudius, after a feeble resistance, consented to the execution of the sentence. Nor was the zeal of the senate less ardent in the cause of their new sovereign. They ratified, perhaps with a sincere transport of zeal, the election of Claudius, and, as his predecessor had shown himself the personal enemy of their order, they exercised, under the name of justice, a severe revenge against his friends and family. The senate was permitted to discharge the ungrateful office of punishment, and the emperor reserved for himself the pleasure and merit of obtaining by his intercession a general act of indemnity. Such ostentatious clemency discovers less of the real character of Claudius than a trifling circumstance in which he seems to have consulted only the dictates of his heart. The frequent rebellions of the provinces had involved almost every person in the guilt of treason, almost every estate in the case of confiscation and Gallienus often displayed his liberality by distributing among his officers the property of his subjects. On the accession of Claudius, an old woman threw herself at his feet and complained that a general of the late emperor had obtained an arbitrary grant of her patrimony. This general was Claudius himself, who had not entirely escaped the contagion of the times. The emperor blushed at the reproach, but deserved the confidence which she had reposed in his equity. The confession of his fault was accompanied with immediate and ample restitution. In the arduous task which Claudius had undertaken of restoring the empire to its ancient splendor, it was first necessary to revive among his troops a sense of order and obedience. With the authority of a veteran commander, he represented to them that the relaxation of discipline had introduced a long train of disorders, the effect of which were at length experienced by the soldiers themselves, that a people ruined by oppression and indolent from despair could no longer supply a numerous army 
with the means of luxury or even subsistence that the danger of each individual had increased with the despotism of the military order since princes who tremble on the throne will guard their safety by the instant sacrifice of every obnoxious subject the emperor expiated on the mischiefs of a lawless caprice which the soldiers could only gratify at the expense of their own blood as their seditious elections had so frequently been followed by civil wars which consumed the flower of the legions either in the field of battle or in the cruel abuse of victory he painted in the most lively colours the exhausted state of the treasury the desolation of the provinces the disgrace of the roman name and the insolent triumph of rapacious barbarians it was against those barbarians he declared that he intended to point the first effort of their arms tetricus might reign for a while over the west and even zenobia might preserve the dominion of the east these usurpers were his personal adversaries nor could he think of indulging any private resentment till he had saved an empire whose impending ruin would unless it was timely prevented crush both the army and the people the various nations of germany and sarmatia who fought under the gothic standard had already collected an armament more formidable than any which had yet issued from the euxine on the banks of the Niester, one of the great rivers that discharged themselves into that sea they constructed a fleet of two thousand or even six thousand vessels numbers which however incredible they may seem would have been insufficient to transport their pretended army of three hundred and twenty thousand barbarians whatever might be the real strength of the goths the vigour and success of the expedition were not adequate to the greatness of the preparations in their passage through the bosphorus the unskilful pilots were overpowered by the violence of the current and while the multitude of their ships were crowded in a narrow channel many were dashed against each other or against the shore the barbarians made several descents on the coasts both of europe and asia but the open country was already plundered and they were repulsed with shame and loss from the fortified cities which they assaulted a spirit of discouragement and division arose in the fleet and some of their chiefs sailed away towards the islands of crete and cyprus but the main body pursuing a more steady course anchored at length near the foot of mount athos and assaulted the city of thessalonica the wealthy capital of all the macedonian provinces their attacks in which they displayed a fierce but artless bravery were soon interrupted by the rapid approach of claudius hastening to a scene of action that deserved the presence of a warlike prince at the head of the remaining powers of the empire impatient for battle the goths immediately broke up their camp relinquished the siege of thessalonica left their navy at the foot of mount athos traversed to the hills of macedonia and pressed forward to engage the last defence of italy we still possess an original letter addressed by claudius to the senate and people on this memorable occasion conscript fathers says the emperor know that three hundred and twenty thousand goths have invaded the roman territory if i vanquish them your gratitude will reward my services should i fall remember that i am the successor of gallienus the whole republic is fatigued and exhausted we shall fight after valerian after ingenuous 
Regilianus, Lollianus, Posthumus, Celsus, and a thousand others, whom a just contempt for Gallienus provoked into rebellion. We are in the want of darts, of spears, and of shields. The strength of the empire, Gaul, and Spain are usurped by Tetricus, and we blush to acknowledge that the archers of the east serve under the banners of Zenobia. Whatever we shall perform will be sufficiently great. The melancholy firmness of this epistle announces a hero careless to his fate, conscious of his danger, and still deriving a well-grounded hope from the resources of his own mind. The events surpassed his own expectations and those of the world. By the most signal victories he delivered the empire from this host of barbarians, and was distinguished by posterity under the glorious appellation of the Gothic Claudius. The imperfect historians of an irregular war do not enable us to describe the order and circumstances of his exploits. But, if we could be indulged in the illusion, we might distribute into three acts this memorable tragedy. 1. The decisive battle was fought near Nisus, a city of Dardania. The legions at first gave away, oppressed by numbers and dismayed by misfortunes. Their ruin was inevitable, had not the abilities of their emperor prepared a seasonable relief. A large detachment, rising out of the secret and difficult passes of the mountains, which, by his order, they had occupied, suddenly assailed the rear of the victorious Goths. The favorable instant was improved by the activity of Claudius. He revived the courage of his troops, restored their ranks, and pressed the barbarians on every side. 50,000 men are reported to have been slain in the Battle of Nisus. Several large bodies of barbarians, covering their retreat with the movable fortifications of wagons, retired, or rather escaped, from the field of slaughter. 2. We may presume that some insurmountable difficulty, the fatigue perhaps, or the disobedience of the conquerors, prevented Claudius from completing in one day the destruction of the Goths. The war was diffused over the province of Maesia, Thrace, and Macedonia, and its operations drawn out into a variety of marches, surprises, and tumultuary engagements, as well by sea as by land. When the Romans suffered any loss, it was commonly occasioned by their own cowardice or rashness. But the superior talents of the emperor, his perfect knowledge of the country, and his judicious choice of measures as well as officers assured on most occasions the success of his arms. The immense booty, the fruit of so many victories, consisted for the greater part of cattle and slaves. A select body of the Gothic youth was received among the imperial troops. The remainder was sold into servitude, and so considerable was the number of female captives that every soldier obtained to his share two or three women a circumstance from which we may conclude that the invaders entertained some designs of settlement as well as of plunder, since even in a naval expedition they were accompanied by their families. 3. The loss of their fleet, which was either taken or sunk, had intercepted the retreat of the Goths. A vast circle of Roman posts, distributed with skill, supported with firmness, and gradually closing towards a common centre, forced the barbarians into the most inaccessible parts of Mount Hemus, where they found a safe refuge, but a very scanty subsistence. 
during the course of a rigorous winter in which they were besieged by the emperor's troops famine and pestilence desertion and the sword continually diminished the imprisoned multitude on the return of spring nothing appeared in arms except a hardy and desperate band the remnant of that mighty host which had embarked at the mouth of the Niester. The pestilence which swept away such numbers of the barbarians at length proved fatal to their conqueror. After a short but glorious reign of two years, Claudius expired at Sirmium, amidst the tears and acclamations of his subjects. In his last illness, he convened the principal officers of the state and army, and in their presence recommended Aurelian, one of his generals, as the most deserving of the throne, and the best qualified to execute the great design which he himself had been permitted only to undertake. The virtues of Claudius, his valour, affability, justice, and temperance, his love of fame and of his country, place him in that short list of emperors who added lustre to the Roman purple. Those virtues, however, were celebrated with peculiar zeal and complacency by the courtly writers of the age of Constantine, who was the great-grandson of Crispus, the elder brother of Claudius. The voice of flattery was soon taught to repeat that gods, who so hastily had snatched Claudius from the earth, rewarded his merit and piety by the perpetual establishment of the empire in his family. Notwithstanding these oracles, the greatness of the Flavian family, a name which it had pleased them to assume, was deferred above twenty years, and the elevation of Claudius occasioned the immediate ruin of his brother, Quintilius, who possessed not sufficient moderation or courage to descend into the private station to which the patriotism of the late emperor had condemned him. Without delay or reflection, he assumed the purple at Aquilia, where he commanded a considerable force and though his reign lasted only seventeen days, he had time to obtain the sanction of the Senate and to experience a mutiny of the troops. As soon as he was informed that the great army of the Danube had invested the well-known valour of Aurelian with imperial power, he sunk under the fame and merit of his rival, and ordering his veins to be opened, prudently withdrew himself from the unequal contest. The general design of this work will not permit us minutely to relate the actions of every emperor after he ascended the throne, much less to deduce the various fortunes of his private life. We shall only observe that the father of Aurelian was a peasant of the territory of Sirmium, who occupied a small farm, the property of Aurelius, a rich senator. His warlike son, enlisted in the troops as a common soldier, successively rose to the rank of a centurion, a tribune, the prefect of a legion, the inspector of the camp, the general, or, as it was then called, the duke of a frontier, and, at length during the Gothic war, exercised the important office of commander-in-chief of the cavalry. In every station he distinguished himself by matchless vigour, rigid discipline, and successful conduct. He was invested with a consulship by the Emperor Valerian, who styles him, in the pompous language of that age, the deliverer of Illyricum, the restorer of Gaul, and the rival of the Scipios. At the recommendation of Valerian, a senator of the highest rank and merit, Alpius Crinitus, 
whose blood was derived from the same source as that of Trajan, adopted the Pannonian peasant, gave him his daughter in marriage, and relieved with his ample fortune the honourable poverty which Aurelian had preserved inviolate. The reign of Aurelian lasted only four years and about nine months, but every instant of that short period was filled by some memorable achievement. He put an end to the Gothic war, chastised the Germans who invaded Italy, recovered Gaul, Spain, and Britain out of the hands of Tetricus, and destroyed the proud monarchy which Zenobia had erected in the east on the ruins of the afflicted empire. It was the rigid attention of Aurelian, even to the minutest articles of discipline, which bestowed such uninterrupted success on his arms. His military regulations are contained in a very concise epistle to one of his inferior officers, who is commanded to enforce them, as he wishes to become a tribune, or he is desirous to live. Gaming, drinking, and the arts of divination were severely prohibited. Aurelian expected that his soldiers should be modest, frugal, and laborious, that their armor should be constantly kept bright, their weapons sharp, their clothing and horses ready for immediate service, that they should live in their quarters with chastity and sobriety, without damaging the cornfields, without stealing even a sheep, a fowl, or a bunch of grapes, without exacting from their landlords either salt or oil or wood. The public allowance, continues the emperor, is sufficient for their support. Their wealth should be collected from the spoils of the enemy, not from the tears of the provincials. A single instance will serve to display the rigor and even cruelty of Aurelian. One of the soldiers had seduced the wife of his host. The guilty wretch was fastened to two trees forcibly drawn towards each other, and his limbs were torn asunder by their sudden separation. A few such examples impressed a salutary consternation. The punishments of Aurelian were terrible, but he had seldom occasion to punish more than once the same offence. His own conduct gave a sanction to his loss, and the seditious legions dreaded a chief who had learned to obey and who was worthy to command. End of chapter 11, part 1 Recording by Kritika